Go Mighty One, our sacrifice begins. We commence. Spellburn, a podcast about the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game. It's time to party like it's 1974. So what is Dungeon Crawl Classics RPG? Is it just a beautifully made OSR game with superior standards of art and more prodigious production of random tables? Or is it more than a retro clone? And if so... How does it differ from the games that hew closer to the traditional elements of the world's most popular role-playing game, Older Edition? When we talk about OSR games or retro clones, what's fundamentally new and different about DCC? How is it that DCC is perhaps one of the most different role-playing games of the OSR, and yet is constantly said to rekindle the original spirit and nostalgia of so many old schoolers? We're going to go deep into RPG theory and DCC with Dungeon Call Classics writer Stephen Bean, a.k.a. Judge Jonesen. All this and more on this week's episode of Spellburn. I'm Judge Julian, and with me are Judge Jen. Hey, guys. Judge Jeff. Hello, Governor. And our special guest, Judge Jonesen. Jonesen to be on this podcast. Oh, and with that, <laughs> we're going to head right on over to some tavern talk. Welcome, friends. Good to see you. I only had one drink to calm my nerves. And give it a drink of your most expensive. Tavern talk. All right, here we are in Tavern Talk, where we will talk about what's going on in the DCC universe. And especially our focus, uh, you know, might be today on... What are we looking forward to in the new year as this episode should be heard right around or just after New Year's Day 2018? So I'm going to hand it over first to our special guest, Judge Jones and Steve Bean. What do you think? What are you looking forward to in 2018? Hey, Julian. Thanks for that intro. I've been trying to work a J in for weeks and this is what I could come up with. So I really I was jonesing to be on the podcast. So um, it's not quite 2018, but I was obviously jonesing, looking forward to being on the podcast here with you all. Um, but there are three things I'm really looking forward to in 2018. One is um, I'm going to launch a cross-genre campaign inspired by the gonzo ethos of the DCC community. It's going to start at Frozen in Time and work its way through Brontosaurus Rex and Moon Slaves, and the Shutter Mountains, and then uh, wind up in, uh, in Atomic Overlord. So it's a little bit of a uh, homage to Edgar, um, and there's kind of a reason for all of this weird traveling and time traveling and all of that. Um, but in the Goodman Games arena, I'm looking forward to the annual, I hope. Mm. <laughs> the elusive annual for which I'm pretty sure I've written some things, although they've, they've swallowed into the dark master's sanctum. And then uh, the Gen, Gen Con tourney module, which I don't know if there's going to be another one. I don't have any inside information, but um, I thought that was a pretty fantastic little foray into uh, old school tournament modules. Um, and I was lucky enough to get, get a room into that module. It was pretty exciting. Awesome. That, uh, 
Was there? A, did you have some distinction in your room? Did you kill the most people, Steve? Did I hear that? Or I something? killed the second most people, but okay. I feel a little bit, a little bit uh, hurt about second place. And not, not to take anything away from my good buddy Judge Terry, who is an awesome designer and an awesome judge. But my room went into playtesting, and in playtesting was deemed too lethal, and was was toned down. And so I feel like had my room been played as written, I would have walked away with the most lethal room award. Oh. So uh, I told I told Judge Terry on G Plus, and I'll, I'll say it publicly here. I'm, if there's another if there's another tournament module this year, I'm gunning for you, Terry. I'm, I'm, I'm gunning for the top spot. That's awesome. He doesn't have as cool a Judge J name as you do. So there's that. Judge Jeff, what do you think? Well, 2018. Uh, thank you, Steve. I, I, this, the annual is a great response to that. I'm excited about the annual. I'm excited about the release of MCC in March. I think the thing that I'm most excited about is actually running through those MCC modules. Uh, I would like to, for my DCC NYC meetup group, run through all of the MCC modules that have been uh, that have been put out so far and start a little MCC campaign. I think that'll be fun. Of course, I'm looking forward to making it to GaryCon and to Gen Con again. And uh, yeah, I think that's basically what I'm looking forward to in 2018. Awesome. Uh, I myself, I'm going to just build on what you said. I am really, of course, I've got the PDF and I was a backer and I, I just drool over the art in MCC. But to have that hard copy in my grubby little hands is one of my big thrills. So I'm definitely looking forward to that as well as I do. I'm happy, very happy to say that uh, we're hoping to have a Nowhere City adventure published by my good friend and sometimes collaborator, Mr. Stephen Bean. Mm. So, uh, which is my first uh, Nowhere City adventure by someone other than me, AKA a a good writer. So, um, (laughs) So that should be pretty cool. I'm looking forward to that. Um, And I pile on with uh, what you guys said, uh, aside from that, annual and so on, for sure. Uh, Jen, what do you think? Um, The annual's definitely on the list. Uh, GaryCon, GenCon, of course. Um, We're going to see if we can swing it to North Texas and Gamehole that we can hit the big four. Um, I'm also looking forward to the second annual Brinkmanomicon. We're actually having some individual game days uh, on a quarterly basis, the first of which will probably be happening before the show airs. And it, well, just little one-day things. That way the, the locals can blow off some steam. And I'm mm. really looking forward to getting back on the road crew. I want to make myself accountable for this. I need to get that fire back and I need to get back out there and pound the well, not the pavement, but the the brick stores, and I've I've got so many things brewing in my little noggin that, I've, yeah, I, I just need to get out there and, and start recruiting again. That that's what made me happiest. As for releases, I gotta say I'm excited to know more about the uh, the Vance project for DCC, and I cannot wait to get. DCC Lankmar in my grubby little paws, and I know you guys are sick to death of me going on about this. But oh no, <laughs> I want it. I want it too. That's a that, that's an excellent point. That will be uh, idea number four for Road Crew Game campaign fodder. 
When, and, uh, when is it, Jen? Oh, your guess is as good as mine. I think the unofficial goal is Gen Con. But, mm, you know, really? printers and whatnot, you never know. Oh, that would be fantastic to get MCC and Linkmore within like seven months of each other. Well, yeah. they were supposed to be split up a bit more, but, you know, you know. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so if, if Lankbar stays on track, then, yeah, that would be the, the bestest, bestest thing. It, it'll be nice to see uh, a really huge project that I had my paws on finally see in the day of light. So, Judge so. Jen, I, I, have to, um, I have to coattail on uh, a comment you made a moment ago. I don't think, Sir? yeah, I don't think you have any um, apologies to make in the recruitment department. And in fact, one of the things I am most looking forward to about Gen Con this year is seeing how many women of all ages come inspired by you. Because last year we had, Aww. no, seriously, I must have talked to three or four women who were there inspired by you. And, you know, I, hats off to you. Uh, I think there's a lot more that we could do in the DCC community to, to encourage women to join the community. And you have been just the, the, the herald. And I, I mean, I literally talk, I'm talking to these women and they're all talking about how inspired they are by judge Jen. Well, let, let's not leave the others. You know, Haley's been running for years. We, we've got Haley sketch. She just isn't on a podcast, so she's not as visible. You know, they, there are others, but, uh, yeah, you know, even even Joseph was talking about something like the ladies of DCC. I said, no, 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 no. Uh, the Order of Shanna, perhaps? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, we're. I, I am looking forward to seeing those numbers quadruple. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, there, and that's a great point. I mean, Jen, I know you're, you're a very visible role model for people, which is great. And I hardly just women for that matter, but... But, you know, Joan and Val and, you know, even Evie, who's just, who's only, I don't even know what, 10 or 11. She was running a game at, at mm-hmm. <laughs> in Doug's Inferno Road thing at Gen Con. I mean, it was awesome. And Demons from it's heck. Just, yes. <laughs> it just snowballs. It just snowballs. And, you know, one inspires four and four inspires 16 and, and, Sarah. and so on. It's, it's great. And Sarah. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Absolutely. And Valerie. And Val, of course. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Very good stuff. Well, that and that is an excellent thing to look forward to in 2018 and beyond. Uh, with that, on ending on a very positive note, let's move on over to summon email. I call upon the flame to summon you. Who will deliver the message for me? I came here to give you these facts. Summon email. All right, welcome to the mailbag portion of our show. Uh, we're going to change it up slightly. Uh, we're going to read both of our missives together, and then we're going to talk about them together. And then a little later on, we'll link them to our main topic uh, later in the show. But we'll start off with uh, Judge Jeff. I think this came, is this right that this came to us via Twitter, Jeff? It sure is. This one is a tweet from Josh Flora, who is at Natural Zeros on Twitter. And Josh says, it's hard fighting my natural inclination not to kill PCs. Any tips for somebody more used to running nigh unkillable heroics? 
Very good. So I think the second one comes right into that. This is an old friend of ours, Jen. You've probably uh, read many of his emails. So do you want to <laughs> take this one and continue the tradition? Oh, we're getting to the point where we should just have him record his submissions and send them in. Um, we can do that. <laughs> From DM Kojo, of course. Greetings, Burners. I had been running games at cons for a few years now, but at Gen Con, I had a table that raised some questions about my judging style versus what some of the players were used to. Specifically, there were two instances in question. First, when players roll their action dice, I always ask them, are you happy with that or do you want to spend luck? I think I may have picked this up from Judge Jeffrey after listening to the Iron Tavern actual play podcast. The players at Gen Con were a bit surprised that I didn't give them any indication of how much luck, if any, they should spend. For the record, I ask this question on any roll except a natural 20. Second, when a thief rolls their luck die to see how many points they add to a roll, I always have them say how many dice they're rolling in advance. It seems that other judges my con players were familiar with let thieves roll luck dice until they got to a number of luck points they were happy with. So am I just a mean judge? How did the judges, Jay, handle this? Thanks. Oh, Kojo. Excellent. Um, Excellent. <laughs> two, great, two great emails. Oh, boy. So let's, let's not go way into our topic yet, but let's just discuss the emails to make sure we don't drop them, of course. Um, so, Steve, do you want to uh, ha- take the first one from Josh? <laughs> How do we fight our natural inclination not to kill PCs? Assuming maybe that's your natural inclination, but, but I get it. It's a really actually quite a good question. Uh, what do you think, Steve? Well, uh, I'm kind of a softy as a judge. So it's not my natural inclination to kill PCs. Although over the last couple of years, I have upped my, the lethality of my game um, to sort of run with the pack. Uh, and I think this is a great pick Julian. Cause uh, you know, the question here in my mind is what's the player's motivation in running? What do you call it? A nigh killable, nigh unkillable heroic. And so, you know, in my mind, there's maybe two motivations here. One is to win. And, you know, if if this is the player's motivation, then I recommend that Josh send a player to Doug Kovacs to straighten him or her out. Um, Because Doug will... Doug will very, um, very passionately, very um, philosophically, very articulately, and very forcefully um, explain why there is no such thing as winning in RPGs. Um, But I think um, maybe another motivation that someone running a nigh unkillable heroic might have is to keep the same character and watch her advance and evolve over time. And, you know, to this I say there are things worse than death. Um, so I, you know, I, I know three DCC adventures where you can bring a PC back one being blades against death, Harley Stroh's uh, module. And then I've actually done two of them. So again, this shows you my attitudes towards death. So, um, crawling through hell in the 2016 gong farmers almanac is, uh, a, um, an adventure where you can go try and get your buddies back from, uh, the lands of the dead. And then, um, the bonus adventure that I wrote for the reprint of Intrigue at the Courts of Chaos actually has a setup where um, the PCs can be basically unkillable. And so, you know, I think when 
you want to take death out of the equation, it's fine because, as I said a minute ago, there are things worse than death. You know, patron enslavement being probably the best example in DCC, right? I mean, and you guys talk about this a lot here on Spellburn. Uh, and I think patrons are probably the best narrative device uh, in the game. Um, and, you know, if, uh, if, a, if someone dies and, doesn't, and the player doesn't want the character to die, then I say that's a good opportunity for a patron to contact that character sort of in limbo or in the afterlife and say, hey, uh, you want to make a deal? Um, I can send you back to the mortal, mortal plane um, back to, you know, to your third level character or whatever you were, but it's going to cost you. And that's mm-hmm. very Appendix Ed. Yes, of course. Of course. Okay. Very good. Judge Jen, what do you think on Josh's question here? Oh, oh, I don't get to deal with Kojos yet. Um, you Not know, yet. Josh, I'm kind of with you on that, um, especially if it's a campaign and the, the players aren't fluctuating as much. Like I've got six stagnant players as opposed to the open table with rotating seats then yeah you kind of want the players to have a good time and not die on the other hand you know when they stop being afraid of death they start doing just dumber and dumber stuff because they know they can get away with it and so yeah, it is a hard line to draw, and I think you'll. I, I think we find that in most games, not specifically just DCC. Mm, Judge Jeff. All right, I think that's a great question. I think that you know whether you're trying to simulate Appendix N or if you're just trying to simulate you know epic fantasy, kind of the there. there I feel like there are two kind of ways that you can pursue that with your fantasy role playing games. And if you're looking at like like games like Pathfinder or Fifth Edition, you have these characters who, from the very beginning, are pretty difficult to kill. Uh, you have kind of if you don't already have really high hit points, you also you you at least have a lot of mechanisms in place that kind of keep you from dying. And although it can be really kind of fun and exciting to play these kind of like epic heroes who basically can't be killed, part of the problem with that is what Jen was saying about how like you go out there. And your characters start kind of feeling like they're entitled to life, I guess, that no matter what they do, they're going to survive this encounter. No matter what monster they encounter, they're never going to run because they're definitely going to beat that encounter. And that style works for a lot of people. And there's a reason why those games are as popular as they are. But that style doesn't work for me because I start to get bored with that. For me, I... I don't really feel like I get a lot of satisfaction out of my characters getting kind of more powerful and, and, and moving up the charts unless they actually have a risk of death there. So I need to know that my characters have a chance of dying in order for me to really feel like I'm not just kind of being given a free pass. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's a lot of it's game design and a lot of it's playing the game that's right for you. So I don't know. I think a lot of it is just kind of how we present that at the table, as long as we make sure that everybody who's playing is kind of like, is kind of on the same page though and understands that like, just because you are invested in your character doesn't mean your character doesn't have a chance of dying. And I like what Steve says, like if your character does die, it doesn't mean that you have to fudge the dice rolls. You can come up with a way of dealing with that in game that, that, that falls into the fiction that you've built together. Hmm. I, I lo- Jeff, I liked your, your comparison to D and D. 
my experience with D&D is that, you know, you get to that high level and you spent a fair amount of time sort of uh, fighting kobolds to get there, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that DCC, you know, offers the same feeling that you're describing of being super powerful, but at low levels because you're involved in super important things, right? So, yeah. you know, like Intrigue at the Courts of Chaos being a classic example where you're on an errand for the gods of chaos at, what is that? I think a first level module, you know? So hopefully that's, that's the substitute for, you know, for Josh to use with his players who might be used to sort of the D and D scene. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm going to, uh, I'm going to take Josh's question. I'm going to wrap around it to Kojo and send it back to you guys. But um, I will say I've played I've played a game called Hollow Point, which is I don't know if anybody's heard of it or if you guys have heard of it at all, but um, where it's kind of an indie narrativist game or whatever you might want to call it. And one of the interesting things about Hollow Point, which is kind of meant to simulate crazy action movies and stuff like that, John Woo movies or whatever, is that you actually decide when your character dies. You actually your character can't huh. die unless the player calls it like in a dramatic scene or whatever. And the only way you get to level is by sacrificing your character. You get a higher level character. Oh, interesting. So um, anyway, it's a kind of a pretty fun game. I've run it at, um, you know, I've just run some one shots with it for fun here and there. Anyway, hollow points, fun game. We'll put it in the show notes. The reason I wanted to do these two questions together is because, you know, I think one of the most obvious way for me, ways to make people less killable or more killable is to play with the luck mechanic. So if you, to go to Kojo's question, if you really want to give people the agency over their lives, you can, you know, when they're in that life and death situation, almost everybody's got a few luck points hanging around and you can say, okay, you rolled a 13. This is a DC 18 saving throw and, you know, some bad stuff is going to happen to you. So do you want to spend luck, right? In a campaign, I'm going to do that. If it's pretty close to life or death or definitely life or death, I'm probably going to do that because they've got a lot invested. I'm not going to make them play guessing games, right? Mm Mm-hmm. In a one shot, yeah, maybe, maybe not. At a con game, I'm, you know, people are playing casually, but I'm trying to have them have fun, and I don't want to throw a pre-gen at them at, in hour three of a four-hour con. So I'm probably going to play it pretty easy as well, right? I will say that uh, when when I ran or not ran, but played in John Hook's playtest of the Shadows Over Devil's Reef, the Halloween uh, game in last this this year, this mm-hmm. last year. Uh, he uh, surprised me by totally leaving that, you know, by obscuring that and never telling us how much luck we would have to spend or what mm-hmm. we were shooting for as a target, which was great because it's a horror game, right? And I thought that sort of increased the helplessness meter mm. and it actually dialed that up in a, in a kind of a good way for what we were doing at the time. I don't know if I'd always want that. I didn't mind it as a player because, you know, it was a one shot and, you know, I didn't really care. I was having fun playing the adventure and seeing what John was doing and it was a cool adventure, da da da. So whatever, that that I was only gonna play that character once. So didn't really <laughs> care. But I think I think luck is a very big thing that you can do 
Um, and it's there to, uh, in my opinion, and we'll talk about it more when we get into the meat of the episode, but it's a big part of player agency. I, but to answer your question, Kojo, and I think we'll just kind of, we should circle around and just say yay or nay or how we do it. But uh, Kojo, I personally have always been pretty easy on the players and I will, uh, I will almost always run and tell them what they're shooting for um, rather than not. So I was when I was at Brinkmanomicon, I got to play under Judge Jen and I got to play under Judge Terry Olson. And one thing that I love about Dungeon Crawl Classics is that nobody really seems to run or play this the game the exact same way. And I like that a lot of these little rules aren't really super outlined for us in the rule book and we just kind of figure out how we're going to do it ourselves. And the way Judge Terry Olson was running it at Brinkmanomicon is the way that you run it, Julian, where he would just say like, yeah, give me a DC 15 agility check. Mm. And when I was playing with Jen, she was doing it. I don't know if that's how you always do it, Jen, but this, she was doing it the way that Kojo does it, where you roll the dice and then you have to tell the judge how many luck points you're going to spend before you even know whether or not maybe the original, maybe the original dice was enough. Like you don't, you don't know. Uh, and you might end up spending luck that you didn't need to spend. And that's just kind of part of, I guess, the the, the tension building mechanism. Uh, but then I'm kind of a, I do kind of do the Goldilocks approach in the middle. And what I do <laughs> is when, when somebody rolls a D20 and it works, I just say, okay, great. It happens. And I explain what happened. But if, if they don't get a high enough result, I always say, are you happy with that? And if they say, no, I'm not happy with that. I allow them to ask me, but what if I spend X amount of luck? So somebody can say, no, I'm not happy with that. What if I spend three points of luck? Will that change my result? I will say yes or no. Oh, wow. I'm not going to let them. And if I say no, and they say, oh, well, what if I spend four? I, th- th- at that point, we're not negotiating any further. They only get, the, they only get to ask that question once per roll. But mm. I will give them that much. So if they roll a 12 and they say, if I spend three, is that going to work? And they say no. And I say no. And they spend five. Then if that, if that ends up working, then great, it works. If it doesn't, then it doesn't. And there was a situation when I was running uh, Teagle Manor where that exact situation happened, where David Beatty rolled a D20, uh, didn't get his roll, asked me if he'd spent a certain amount of luck, if that would change the result. I said no. He spent a little bit more, and it still wasn't enough. And he was very cranky <laughs> about that. <laughs> but it was yeah. David, so it was funny. Exactly. <laughs> oh, don't be mean. And Jen, is that how you always do it, or is that unique to? It it's not how I started to it. it okay. The very first time I I ran a game at Gary Con, I don't remember if it was Jim Sketch or someone else who called me out and said, "Oh wow, you're an easy judge." And I'll tell mm. you, that was the end of that. <laughs> yeah. So even at my table, you know, even during my campaign play. They're like, okay, I got this. And maybe I'll just give a slight shake of my head. And they're like, oh, crap, I got to spend luck. Okay, well, how much luck do I have to spend? And, you know, if it's a really make or break scene, I might give them, you know, well, it's more than three, but it's less than eight. You know, or, or <laughs> something and give them a ballpark maybe so that it's not a total waste. But I've also... You know, if I'm really enjoying the game and I enjoy the characters that I'm playing, yeah, you know, running for, then yeah, maybe I'll I'll say, you know, yeah, it's gonna take six points of luck. How much do you have? Oh, I only have seven, dude. Totally your choice. Yeah. So somebody pointed out to me that if you burn, you know, eight points of luck and you had twelve, you know, and you leaves you with a luck four, 
you're going to die the next time you die anyway because you won't recover your body, right? I mean, to be and you're and all the bad luck is going to go your way. All the monsters are going to attack you first, and well, you know, absolutely. So. If you end up with luck of one or zero, there is no chance of recovering that body, right? Right, right. And and Julian, that's uh, you're invoking the um, rule I was going to talk about, which is the consequences of low luck rule on page three sixty one. And uh, I think that that rule is the way to make luck burn not gamist, right? So I'm an easy judge. I'll tell you basically exactly how much luck you need to burn. And I don't have a problem with that because what I'm aiming for in all my games are those moments of dramatic tension, right? So obviously that's not a moment of dramatic tension. It's very gamist. But what I try to build in is this feeling that fate is looming. So sure, go ahead and burn that luck. That's your resource to manage. But as you approach the, that low luck level, know that you're you're headed for a world of hurt. So you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna get you're gonna get your get your role now, but you're gonna pay for it later. And not just you, but also the other members of your party, right? Because if you're suffering consequences of low luck, and this is this is maybe my own interpretation of the rule, but it means bad things, if bad things can happen to you, they're going to happen to you. And those bad things can include things like wandering monsters that don't just happen to you, they happen to your buddies, yeah. right? So what I try to build in is a sense of like, well, do you really want to do that now? Because down the line, you might need that luck. And if you get your let your luck fall too low, like, like you're talking about, Julian, with that consequence of low luck rule, things can get really bad. So yeah, that's that's great stuff, guys. I'll just mention in my college game, I think if we played DCC, my uh, my college gang would have actually killed low luck characters to stave <laughs> off bad consequences for the group. They would have enjoyed that. They would have said, "Well, yeah, you're getting under five. You know, that's it for you." So uh, anyway, uh, that's the kind of table I grew up with. So um, all right, thanks, guys. Great emails. Uh, thank you, as always, listeners, for the emails. And don't forget, you can always contact us at the band at spellburn.com. And we look forward to hearing from you. Let us head on over to Mighty Deeds. Let the combat begin! To the death! Why behold our hero? Huh. So you want to play rough, eh? Well, take this! Mighty Deeds. All right, here we are. In Mighty Deeds, and we're going to begin before we get into our topic at hand with just hearing from Judge Steve. Uh, give us a little uh, intro to, you know, first of all, your history with gaming, how you got into it, what you love best, and then tell us how you got into DCC and the Goodman game scene and so on. Sure. Well, um, my gaming origin story is so classic as to be almost boring. Uh, I got the blue box set. Uh, when I was, I think, 11 or 12 for Christmas. Uh, my parents, uh, bless them, gave it to me. And uh, I think um, I think somebody once said uh, there was a hole in my soul that I didn't know was there until I found RPGs. And that's definitely true for me. Um, you know, if you want more details on sort of my life in gaming, uh Goodman Games uh, ran community publisher profile series over the last few months and uh, did a pretty lengthy piece on me as the publisher for Steve Bean Games. So go check that out. Um, I'll just share with you that my I had the, 
the good, good fortune to get into DCC at Pacificon. I think it was 2011 or 2012. Um, don't quote me on that. Judge Terry Olson would remember. But I ran into Terry actually at Pacificon. Uh, he and I were lived in the same uh, apartment complex in grad school, but I hadn't seen him since then. And he was with Stephen Newton. And the three of us got into a zero-level funnel game being run by uh, the Dark Master himself. And uh, you know, oh man, yeah, it, wow. it, you know, it, the game had barely come out, and uh, Joseph was running a zero-level funnel that was unpublished, and he must have put. 15 or 16 people around his table and it was just a great time and um the free rpg adventure had just come out with the map of mystery contest and so mm -hmm. i chatted joseph up about that and entered that contest and obviously um job won with his fantastic uh one who watches from below but both terry and i placed in the top five and that's how i got um started to get contract gigs through goodman games very cool awesome well that that is a great origin story. Thank you. That's pretty cool. And it's fun to picture the three of you guys at the table doing that. That's uh, that's pretty neat. Let's start by setting the table a little bit, Steve. Talk us through the sort of three general approaches in theoretical terms as I sit here in my smoking jacket with my pipe and my brandy snifter. You know, <laughs> uh, Tell it. Go ahead and give us a really quick rundown, and then we'll use those terms willy-nilly. Okay. Well, I'm sitting here in my tweed jacket with elbow pads at my lectern, and uh, yes, thank <laughs> you. going back to uh, the late 90s, early 1000s, um, to something called GNS theory. Now, I was exposed to this maybe 10 years ago, and it really got me thinking about my gaming and my design and my judging and my players' motivations. And um, GNS stands for Gamist Narrativist Simulationist. And let me just say, like any theory, it's reductionistic, and you can you know, completely shoot it apart as being too much, too oversimplifying. But like any good theory, I think it, it just provides a framework to talk about things um, in a focused way. And what GNS theory says is that there are basic, basically three different ways to that players might approach their motivations and decision-making in gaming, or that uh, judges might approach the way they run their game, and I think by extension, the way games might be designed. And those are gamism, simulationism, and narrativism. And gamism is um, the idea that uh, you're there to win. That there is, um, you know, we talked about this a little bit in the previous section, but that, uh, you know, you want to get your character as optimized as possible, use the best tactics, and win the game. Um, simu excuse me, simulationism is very different. It says, you know, the interesting thing about role-playing games is that there's a fictional world, a fictional culture, and we're going to immerse ourselves in that. It might be historically derived or it might be completely um, made up, but that it's going to have an internal logic around geography and weather and environment and history and ecology. And so our experience is going to be somewhat consistent and somewhat sort of systematized by the internal logic of what we're trying to simulate. And then narrativism, um, which is the one that I feel most drawn to, says the goal here is to create dramatic moments, to create a story 
that um, everybody has a role in, um, that everybody gets the spotlight put on them, that everybody gets to be the star, but that you know, at, at one point or another, your character is going to have kind of a, 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 a huge dramatic moment. Awesome. Awesome, Steve. Thank you. Um, so let's, as we, you know, kind of go through the rest of the episode, we're going to talk about what kind of game is DCC. It obviously comes from out of AD&D in a sense, which is, I'd say, leaning pretty heavily on the gamist sort of point of view. But obviously there are innovations within the game that lean other ways. And of course, people play it in all sorts of ways. So I want to start, as we do in Mighty Deeds, by talking about how we play the game and how uh, others play the game and so on. So I'm going to hand it over to um, Judge Jeff and say, how do you, when you play DCC, how do you play the game? I, I'm not. I wasn't familiar with these three terms until just now, as we were, as Steve was reading them and uh, talking about them. So immediately, the one I'm most drawn to is simulationism. I feel like when I'm playing DCC or when I'm running DCC, I, I have the appendix N in mind a lot. And I know that Steve, you were saying that a lot of it is like kind of staying really true to the the realism of the setting you're in, weather patterns, things like that. I I think since my simulationism is more towards kind of recreating that kind of uh, pulpy, uh, kind of pulpy, gritty fantasy, I don't know that those stories really tended to have too much even internal consistency in terms of, you know, the time of the year and whether or not this continent really is like plausible next to whatever. Right? That stuff I, I'm less concerned with. I know that historically when I play kind of more gamist games, like when I was playing Pathfinder and third edition before I, like many people, fled D&D during the fourth edition era and started going back to those really old school games. And I didn't realize kind of how suffocated I had become by kind of that gamist mentality. And I was so, uh, it was so freeing to kind of go back and find these older systems where like you couldn't really game the system if you tried. And that's one thing I really love about DCC. It's like, sure, there are ways that you can game it, especially with like spell burning uh, at, at cons and things like that. But for the most part, the game is kind of set up to where you're just kind of reacting to the environment um, in whatever way you think makes sense for your character. Uh, Steve, do you feel like I'm, I'm kind of understanding these terms correctly and talking about it? Or do you feel like I, there needs to be any kind of clarification on anything I've just said? No, I think you're right on, Jeff. And, and I think, you know, your, your comment about how you try to um, embrace or embody, you know, certain pieces of appendix and literature, I think is a good expansion on, uh, at least as I understand simulationism, is it's not just um, that it has to be sort of historical. You know, if you were to, you know, if you were going to say in your game that, oh, you know, well, well, magic works this way and it doesn't work that way because of the world we're in, whether that be a Vancean world or a Howard world or what have you, then I think that is a form of simulationism uh, that you want to be consistent with that fictional world. Exactly. It doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be realistic. It just has to be consistent with the world that you're building. Right. So, so in a in a Lankmar world, right? Magic has a way that it works. It's it's you know might we might call it ritualistic or it it's um, it requires more kind of anima to invoke. And so you know you're not going to see certain kinds of spells if you're trying to simulate. Uh, you know, a world that where the magic feels like a Lankmar world. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Makes sense. Thank you. So, Jen, uh, what do you feel about all this? 
Uh, how do I play? I'd have to say it was it's a blend of simulationism with the narratism because I kind of dig the the whole character inner conflict thing and gameism I think has a time and place like convention games because you want mm-hmm. every player that's there at the table to enjoy themselves so I don't think it's fair for any one player to sit there and hog the spotlight and know my score in this is better than yours, so I'll make the roll. I think a blend of narrative, yeah, okay. Uh, I think a blend of simulationism <laughs> and narrativism is really where my uh, comfort zone is, at least as a player. Cool. Um, what about you, would- Julian? Well, thank you, Jen. I would say. Um- I probably tend toward, you know, I would say more towards a narrative approach with a little simulation and gameism mixed in. Since I tend to mostly play fighters or warriors, as we sometimes call them in DCC. Of a chaotic bend. Yeah, you know, and and there is a narrativist question in my fighters, which is, do am I would I like to watch people die slowly or do <laughs> do I prefer to just have this sort of anarchic nihilistic violence or um or am I kind of sometimes it's like a very brutally mercenary focus on a um on a goal in the game in in a narrative sense but but my approach to it becomes very gamist like once I decide that Pedrox the warrior is trying to get the amulet then I'm starting metagaming even to make sure we actually get the the amulet right and it, and it seems I mean on the one hand that seems narrativist on the other hand it seems kind of simulational because I'll think of that a little bit in terms of what would Conan do or something. You know, he'd be balls out trying to make sure he gets the damn amulet, right? <laughs> and then, but then I'm going to be a gamist about it a little bit too. I mean, because sure. I'm going to get wrapped up in it a little bit. And I'm going to start being like, hey, Halfling, give me some freaking luck already. And, you know, whatever. So I'll, I'll be, um, and then my other flavor of annoying, supercilious wizard um, is uh, probably a little uh, less uh, violent, um, but just as mercenary, and probably tends more towards a more aloof narrativism and simulationism and less gameism because he's just there to be unpleasant, honestly. <laughs> but I definitely see that when I'm playing a, especially a wizard, but also when I'm playing clerics in Dungeon Crawl Classics, especially in con settings, but really in any setting even though I do tend to kind of err more towards simulationism, there are definitely moments throughout the game where I'm looking at my spell chart and I'm trying to figure out what, what level result I want to get on the spell chart. And I start thinking about with my, with my wizard character, how much maybe I should spell burn to make sure I get to that. And that, that style of thinking is very much a gamist style of thinking instead of just being like, okay, my character in this moment would cast this spell. There are moments where I'm really trying to, to, get a specific result on a spell because I know I will get a, um, I'll get something that I want out of it. Well, thanks guys. I think this has been a great segment and I'd like to talk. I'd like to talk more about this over in patron bond and move to the other side of the table, go behind the screen and let's talk about how we approach it as a judge. Who are you? Your new lord and master. What orders from mortal, my lord? 
Oh, no trouble. One thing I can't stand is people groveling. Patron Bond. All right, welcome to Patron Bond. And Jen, since you brought this up, I'm going to put you in the spotlight first. Oh, yay. Uh, what did this, I bring up? <laughs> well, the question is going to be to each of us. How, how do we approach it as a judge, of course? Do we, do we go simulationist? Do we go gamist? So we're going to ask that question of, of each other. But also, I think, is question number two is going to be, how, what does the game drive us to do as judges? Right and 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 honestly, we let's answer it as players too. Because when I play a warrior in DCC and I, I do a mighty deed, it's pretty narrativist. I have a lot of leeway as a as a player to narrate how the mighty deed works and to negotiate that with the judge. Right, that's almost kind of fate pointish or whatever the fate guys call that stuff. I- Exactly, or, or action action points or action exactly. dice. Exactly. Yeah. So, so we'll talk about our styles as judges and what we like and how it works, but let's also talk about how do the game mechanics you know, of DCC support uh, whichever style. Um, Jen, I wanted to actually specifically in addition, since you brought it up, you know, and this is, of course, for everybody, but starting with you, do you, how do you approach it in a con game when you sit there with folks? So you might say, well, I have more of a simulation style or a narrative style, but then you sit down at Gen Con and a lot of the folks we get at the table are playing DCC for the first time. And they might be old school AD&D players who were very nitty gritty and rulesy, or they might be Pathfinder guys or whatever. So, you know, how do we approach it when we're coming from a more narrative-y place maybe, but we're playing with people in a road crew setting or a con setting? Well, first off, in in most convention games, let's face it, we all have the introductory narrative that we're giving the, the players so they know where the heck their characters are. You know, unless you're in something like an emergent style game, and that's a whole different color. Uh, so, of course, it starts out with narrativism, but you're also trying in that little narrative to give them a feel for their surroundings and, you know, the goals that are going to be necessary within the next two to four hours. So it, it definitely has basic roots in narrativism. And when you bring up things like the action dice or the fate points, it all boils down to collaborative storytelling. And that's what I try to tell any new player to the game. Even if they've never rolled dice before, they've told a story, whether it's to their kids or to their friends. So just do a little uh, simulationism, if you will. Put yourself in your character's shoes and rely back and forth with the narrativism and tell me how you're doing this. You know, like with your mighty deed. Okay, if you want to roll that die, you that deed die, you need to tell me what you're doing. Hmm. Make it big, make it cinematic, make it colorful, make it so that you enjoy it so that I enjoy it and so that the rest of the party gets some, the rest of the table, I should say, gets a little bit of enjoyment out of it and they can build upon that. And then you get these big moments that you strive for. 
That's such a good point, Jen. We've all had those players at our table who, you know, put a the character sheets put in front of them and they just go deer in headlights, right? And mm-hmm. and the way you get around that is like, don't worry, don't ignore the character sheet. Like, just tell me what you want to do, and we'll exactly. we'll figure out what dice to roll. Just narrate what you want your character to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And then the the roll of the die, chances are you're gonna be able to succeed with that and if not we can just amend what you've done a little bit and you know if it's a huge failure it's still going to be entertaining <laughs> especially for me <laughs> well for the whole table yeah. really well, that's true so jen tell us about um you know part two will be how does it work in your home campaigns i mean you have road crew games where you have a pretty consistent oh. uh, group right or or your home table or whatever like when you're really playing for yeah, fun for the most part. and with us you know non newbies how do you approach it um i've got some players that are dead set that they are going to role play their characters whether it is to the good or the bad of the party um i have others that know the boundaries between playing their characters and having fun and making sure that everyone else has fun. Thank you, Bob. (laughs) 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 Uh, Some of those characters, or some of those players develop characters, no matter what they end up rolling up each time, it's the same exact archetype. It's the same exact character. It's the same exact chaotic elven uh, caster. And it's the the same exact chaotic warrior, Julian. What? And <laughs> so I, I, for the people that are used to playing the game or used to role playing in general, I would love people to embrace the idea of stepping outside the box and not worrying about their stats or not worrying about playing the same archetype and step out try something new which you know would also fall in the category of dcc for a lot of these things yeah you know any any setting put out there i mean you've got the shutter mountains purple planet anything that is even home created you have the opportunity of a completely new game even with the dcc engine so step outside your box don't worry about the fact that it's not the typical medieval England castle and you know maybe not play the stereotypical fireball crazy wizard every single time mm, I dig it very much thank you um, Jeff it, 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 did that come across without being condescending well j- only to me which we're used to <laughs> I'm okay with that okay <laughs> So, Judge Jeff, my, I want, I'm going to give you the question, and my brain teaser for you is, in addition, uh, we, we talked through Josh's tweet about um, nigh-unkillable characters. So, here's a contradiction I struggle with. And since you're smarter than me, you get to answer my question. What? <laughs> how, do you, how do we justify the fact that um, DCC is more narrative in a lot of ways. We have luck, we have mighty deeds, we have spellburn, which makes allows huge consequences that are in players' hands, right? So we have all this stuff, mm-hmm. and yet we 
DCC is a game that you can die in very easily, and we sort of joke about it. We encourage the judges to kill people willy-nilly, which is really associated more with a kind of semi-adversarial, very old-school grognard type of approach to the game. Is that is that more gamist than narrative? Is it 50? You know, how do those two impulses, the old school, you know, death is common type thing, how does that impulse work with the kind of narrative impulse of the game? I think a lot of it has to do with the kind of intention of the judge. And I feel like if you're running Dungeon Crawl Classics and you're killing off the characters because you feel like you as the judge want to win and want to have all of the characters die, then certainly you're playing in a very kind of gamist way. But if you're playing a game where you're ruthless with your dice and if characters make bad decisions and or the dice just isn't in their favor and their characters die, I don't think in that situation you're being gamist. I think in that situation you're you're buying into the simulationism of the Dungeon Call Classics universe because in this world, your characters can die and will die uh, if the dice doesn't go their way. So I don't think it's, I don't think narrativism necessarily plays a role in that, but I think, I think it kind of goes into the simulationism hmm. side more. And I think one thing that I try to do as a judge to kind of help encourage people to simulate the world that we're building together, this kind of Aerith, or it doesn't have to be Aerith, but you know, this kind of Dungeon Call Classics universe where all this stuff happens is to just kind of like help them kind of come into the same frame of mind through kind of very, uh, in, in very simple ways. You know, I love when Steve said, don't worry about what's on your character sheet. Because I think kind of helping helping the players see that that's not what makes your character interesting is a really important part to that. You know, I feel like when people are playing games where you have lots and lots of class options and lots of feats and lots of prestige classes and all of these things, people who kind of come from that style of gaming tend to think that what makes their character interesting is the powers that they have on their character sheet. And I want to encourage people to, into the way of thinking that like it's that's not what makes your character interesting. What makes your character interesting is what you bring to your character. If all you have is some is six is six stats and a mighty deed or six stats and a couple of spells, then it's not that your character is bland and doesn't have anything interesting. It's that you have a beautiful blank canvas that you can paint anything you want to with. And I think that's actually really kind of fun and exciting to me. And I think Mighty Deeds is a really great is a really great way that you can really encourage people to do that when somebody's playing a warrior to really just describe how they're affecting the world. It's not about punching the monster in the face. It's about really affecting your surroundings in an interesting and creative way. But I also think that sometimes with that stuff, you can go too far too. In my games, when I'm running a game, if we've got a halfling in the party and they spend luck, I'm not then going to ask them how they spent their luck to help in that situation. And I have been at tables where people have done that and it's fine. Everybody's judging style is different and I have no problem with that. But personally for me, I view halfling luck as something that like, just because you're there, you can kind of affect the things that are around you. I don't actually need to understand how the halfling increased that spell check or how the halfling made that person's jump check go better. But I think you can do very kind of subtle things in the way that you kind of encourage your players to come out of their creative shells that kind of adds to our simulationist way of playing. What do you guys think? Hey, Jeff, I wanted to draft off something you said. You know, you said uh, if all you have is six stats and a deed, and that really um, kind of set a light bulb off in my head because what if all you have is six stats and an occupation? And what mm. I mean by that is 
I think the zero level funnel in DCC that come on people people love it right but it's almost a, it's almost a different game it's almost a game unto itself and it's very narrativist because mm-hmm. you don't have anything you don't have any feats <laughs> you don't have, you don't have anything you've got a duck right and so yeah. think about think about how narrativist the zero level funnel gets when people are like well shoot I, I you know you've put this challenge in front of me and I have none of the usual tools of an RPG to deal with this challenge so I'm going to make it up and I'm going to ask you, the judge, if I can try this wild harebrained thing of throwing my duck at whatever. And the only way to deal with it as a judge is to say, sure, try it, because you got no mechanics to, to refer to. So yeah. it's like the pu- most purely narrative part, I think, of the whole game. And sometimes just a random item that you find on that zero level character sheet will and like definitely like a duck or like, for example, in the campaign game I'm playing right now. I we we used the Doug Kovacs. I think it's a D two hundred roll for a random oh, additional the item you stuff get. List. Exactly, and w- the item I rolled on my character sheet was the preserved Ardvark heart, and that has turned into a major plot point because I decided that I'm like, where did I get this preserved Ardvark heart? And I decided that my character had a missing year of her life and came back uh, with this preserved Ardvark heart, and she thinks she was an Elfland, and now that's like a major storyline that the entire campaign is hinging on. Just because of this dumb item that I rolled on a, on a on a table that I breathed life into, and I encourage people to do that. And when you encourage people to do that, they do, and it's really fun. And I wanted to talk about narrativism uh, on the episode in which you guys had me as a guest because it's my passion about about role playing games. And it's so funny how many DCCers like they they talk about their zero level characters with so much reverence even compared to their their adventuring level characters and and I think it I believe as an uh, as a kind of hardcore narrativist that it's because they they get to focus more on telling the story than on the more gamest parts of the game. Hmm. So I'm going to I'm just going to bring up uh, last episode we got an email from I think it was Rob from Minneapolis who asked us about the funnel and why do people like the funnel? I hate the funnel. Like, I don't mean to do that voice for you, Rob. You are from Minneapolis. <laughs> you are from Minneapolis. Now, you, now. Are, you are a cut above most Americans. So the point is, but Rob had, you know, was, had a sort of anti-funnel thing. And, um, and it was funny because we, and he was like, well, how is that like Appendix N? Nobody had Appendix N. I thought I was being very smart to be like, well, it's Lovecraftian, you know, life is cheap, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, and so there's a simulationist, that's a simulationist perspective, right? To say, well, it's Lovecraftian, life is cheap. Maybe I, w- I had the thought, maybe I'll write an Appendix N novel about gong farmers and turnip farmers and elven sages and so on. Please and and they'll all, it'll be like 46 characters. They'll all have like two pages and, you know, and die basically, <laughs> right? I'll just, I'll run them through like the sailors who watch from below in time or something. And then, <laughs> and, and one of the very few who survives can take a nap and wake up and suddenly have six first yeah, level spells. And, yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And his patron, oh, his patron and, and, will be and no three new languages. Jeffricon, you know, we'll uh, we'll have fun. We'll have fun with it. So, um, no, great discussion, and Steve, this has been a, it's been really fun uh, to have you on the show and and talk about it. Let's let's do kind of a round robin and just say. 
how do the what are the mechanics of D? Just highlight quickly. Give a give me an opinion. We're going to go in alphabetical order. Jeff, Jen, Julian, Steve. How how do the mechanics of the game, you know, play into gamist, simulationist, narrativist, um, and how so? And uh, we'll we'll do that. So uh, Jeff, you're up first. Okay, so I guess I, I feel like I've already kind of answered some of these questions because I feel like with uh, the with the spell charts, it can definitely tap into a gamist mentality and to think about you know oh well if I get this result how um, how can I get to this result because that would really change this encounter where perhaps if you were doing like a narrativist style of gaming, your play, your character may not be thinking, you know, ooh, how much of my flesh do I need to cut off in order to have this fireball really like explode this place? <laughs> um, and, and who knows, maybe yeah. they are. Yeah, that, that's a little <laughs> dark, man. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I feel like that can kind of tap into a gamist side a bit. I do think that the... I think th- I think that overall, though, the mechanics for Dungeon Crawl Classics do tend to really kind of encourage uh, simulationism and narrativism. Specifically, I think the one that's most successful is is the Mighty Deed, because really, like you can you can do anything, you know. And I, I remember explaining this to somebody who was coming from kind of a Pathfinder style of gaming. And it was like, well, what if I, because I, I could tell he was like trying to like break it. And he was like, well, what if I say that with my sword, I, I swirl it around and bring all the creatures from, back from the dead who are all around me. Can I say that too? I was like, well, you can say anything you want, but, th- but the idea is like you can still like, as long as it's believable in the fiction, which that one really kind of isn't, but if it's believable in the fiction, then sure, I'll go with it. Like I, here's, here's a better example. Let's say you're a first level warrior and you somehow have encountered a dragon and you say, I'm going to decapitate him. And you roll your attack. If you hit and you get a three on your mighty deed, you're probably not going to decapitate this dragon. Um, but I will give you some kind of like badass attack on its throat that's going to like damage its ability because perhaps it's a spellcasting dragon. And now like, you know, it's, it's kind of choking and can't quite get that breath attack off or can't quite get that spell off this next couple of rounds. You, you, you work with it within the fiction. Mm. Very nice. Jen, what do you think? I have not much to add to what Jeff so eloquently added. Okay. Ta-da. Okay. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> I'm going to say um I'm going to say it it shines best when it's both simulationist and narrative. I I think there is a gamist um I think there's a gamist thing there that there are exploits as we talked about in our breaking the game ex- uh, episode, you know, you can do a lot of exploits in Spellburn. Um, you can probably, I haven't seen it done as much, but you can probably do a lot of exploits with divine favor, right? And, and divine favor, I mean, talk about a narrativist thing where you can go completely bonkers with a little luck and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, something totally open-ended, you know, you, you can go totally nuts. So, but, but I think, the I think the mechanics are extremely narrativist, and to some degree, as Jeff has pointed out, because they're trying to replicate a, a Appendix N, they're uh, simulationist as well. But like maybe a horror game where everybody at the table has to kind of agree that you're going to play a horror game and not like chuckle and make bad movie jokes the whole time if you're going to try to maintain some tension or suspense at the table. You know, you have to maybe agree that 
you know, yeah, I could just try to game the spellburn mechanic all that I could or divine favor or what have you, but instead I'll try to actually simulate Appendix N sensibility or at least my favorite author or what or the spirit of our current campaign. And I'm going to really try to use these things in an Appendix N way. I'm going to try to build the narrative mechanic in the in Appendix N way or, you know, what have you, Appendix M it could be or whatever appendix is your human organ of choice. Um, so I would say that um, <laughs> I would say definitely leaning to those, but I think they take some uh, care and feeding to really pull it off because, um, you know, and even I get a little gamist at the table sometimes. So uh, it, it takes buy-in and engagement, I think, all around the table, players and judges alike. And communication is always the key there. Um, Steve, what do you think? Well, I like a lot of what all of you just said. Um, and so I think uh, getting the last word here, I'm gonna I'm gonna be a little controversial and then answer the question. So, um, is I've, it about clerics? No, uh, it isn't about <laughs> clerics. Well, there is a you know when I answer the question, I'll bring up one thing about clerics. But you know, I've already outed myself as a diehard narrativist, and um, nobody who's read Null Singularity would ever guess that. Yeah, right. Exactly. And <laughs> and then and you know Julian came along for the ride on World Quest of the Winter Calendar, co-writing that with me, and it was the the first Steve Bean Games project, although it wound up being published second for reasons we won't go into. But you know <laughs> Julian co-wrote that with me, and the whole goal of that module was to create a system by which character actions would change the world in which they they leveled up to first level. So zero level funnel, but how they interpret what they experience to a god who's watching changes the, the world. And so, you know, it's a challenge to judges to say, hey, you know, your players are going to mess with everything you thought this campaign was going to be about, and you got to roll with it. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm a little bit of a heretic. Um, I roll privately and I fudge die rolls, which I feel like is an, is kind of um, heresy uh, in the DCC community. And um, DCC, I was not an Appendix N aficionado when I started DCC. DCC has made me appreciate Appendix N. But I think um, unlike uh, some of my colleagues, such as Judge Jeff, I'm not super wedded to Appendix N. So um, those two things make me a little bit of an outlier uh, in the DCC community, but I want to kind of invoke the uh, notion of judging, right? In my mind, we call we don't we call DCC DMs judges because we're trying to harken back to the early days of D and D. And if you go back, you know, Julian, you made a comment earlier about AD and D, and I think. AD&D, especially second edition, um, started to get pretty gamist. But if you go back to the original D&D, um, you know, you see a lot of comments from writers like Gygax about, um, you know, you're, you're God, essentially. And, and your role is to, I think, um, you know, Jen, you put it, and, and uh, Jeff, you mentioned something. But it's, it's, to, it's to have the players have fun. And, you know, for me, a lot of the fun comes with... A, a dramatic tension. So we've all had that time at the table where, um, you know, everybody go, you know, somebody rolls the die and everybody goes, oh, right. And we think it's the die roll, which is, you know, which is the gamest part of the game, but it's not the die roll. It's the decision and how the die roll determines what the effects of the decision was, right? Because we all, mm -hmm. we've all had the opposite experience a million times where somebody got that same roll and nobody went, oh, because it didn't matter. Right. 
It's only when the decision matters, only when the story makes the decision matter that the die roll makes people go, oh, and to me, that's, that's narrativism. That's the dramatic moment that we all want in our games. And so mm. I'm willing to compromise both the simulationism and the gameism and fudge a little bit behind the screen if I think I can create a dramatic moment. And some people will say, well, you know, that's, you know, you're, then you're kind of, you're kind of, um, you know, making it up, but we're, we're all making it up. It's, it's a, you know, <laughs> Jen said it's a, it's a, it's a collaborative storytelling game. And I just happen to have a little more influence than, than the rest of the people at the table. Part two of the question, um, you know, DCC, you know, one thing that I think, uh, again, I'm going to take this from my narrativist bent. I really, I've really been blown away. I've really been inspired by, um, you know, what people refer to as sort of the gonzo, I call it an ethos, but sort of the gonzo uh, outlook of part of the, parts of the community. And I've really, uh, you know, when I describe the campaign that I'm going to run next, it's really been inspired by, um, you know, the, my colleagues in the community who are more gonzo, because I think it's a way to really put the camera on narrativism. You know, it's like, to me, the gonzo ethos is, heck with the die roll to heck with the simulation like if you want to have slee stacks and wizards in your world and then have uh, gangsters show up that's great and i you know i never would have i never would have imagined that um being part of my game before i joined the dcc community and it's really been something that's inspired me uh julian with regards to your your cleric reference uh, deity disapproval is a place where I'd really like to see um, some improvements made to um, support narrativism because it's one of those tables where you get results that just, to me, don't don't necessarily the die roll. The result of the die roll doesn't necessarily match up with uh, what's going on with deity disapproval, and um, I'd like to see some more kind of proportional results or or some more. Um, explicit judge uh judging around what what the deity gets to do to disapprove um it's too generic uh to me and it just a lot of times the results just don't seem to make sense the last thing i'm going to say that i'd really like to see um happen with dcc around narrativism is adopting some version of of what uh the apocalypse engine calls success with a cost or success with a twist die mechanic and for anyone who doesn't know um that die mechanic uh, in those in the Apocalypse Engine games, you roll 2d6, and anything I think it's below uh, um, a 7 is a fail, and anything above a 10 is a success, and anything in between is called success with a cost. So you get the result you're looking for, but something something's going to happen. There's going to be a consequence, not necessarily a bad consequence. It might send the game in a direction. I would love to see a rule like that introduced that was tied to luck depletion so that the lower your luck got, the more, the more chance there is that even though you might succeed at a die roll, there's going to be some kind of a twist. Because again, it's that idea that I think is inherent in the luck mechanic that fate is looming, right? Luck is called luck, but I think of it as fate. Like you're headed towards your fate and that's the countdown clock. And I would really love to see a mechanic like that, um, you know, attached to luck to give it a more narrative and more narrativist bent. Well, thanks, guys, for a great discussion. Thanks, Steve, for uh, bringing the philosophical bent. And uh, it's been a great uh, discussion. It's time to move on to a couple really quick items before we close it out here. Um, 
last episode, we announced the winner of our latest Dungeon Denizen contest, and that winner was Tim White. He informed me after the episode that we should have given partial credit through no fault of our own, but uh, he mentioned he should have given partial credit to his son, Connor Stone, who helped him on parts of the Lamunculus. So I've updated the site appropriately. And Connor, consider yourself co-awarded as uh, you should be. So uh, <laughs> hopefully Connor gets that, uh, that uh, update. Uh, I also wanted to call Marzio Muscadere out as well because he... Uh, he decided to give Tim a prize of any one of his uh, self-published products for free, just the way that when Marzio had won a dun- uh, the same contest a while back, uh, Daniel Bishop gave Marzio one of his products as a prize. So I thought that was kind of fun, and hopefully Tim, maybe Tim will continue that uh, at some point as well. So anyway, kind That's of chain awesome. Of- yeah, isn't that a fun circle of life? Thank you, Marzio. Way to be uh, a classy and generous guy. That's that's pretty cool. Uh, so that's it, guys. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, thanks, Steve, for being with us. Long overdue, and uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for being a pal. You're one of the guys who really brought me into DCC, and I appreciate it. Last thing, uh, you know, give us some ratings on iTunes, people. Uh, we depend on your goodwill. And, of course, email us if you think we can do better. We'll take all your feedback. Uh, thanks for listening, and remember, uh, just game on. I'm going to sign off by saying I hope you all keep on jonesing for those ah moments at the table, but remember, it's the decision not to die roll. You've been listening to Spellbird, copyright 2017. Theme song has been graciously provided by Glitter Wizard. Learn more at glitterwizard.fancamp.com.